Great. We'll read verses 12 through 17 together this morning. Young Christians, young theologians, I want you to listen very carefully to our passage this morning because God changes His own name. So I want you to listen to what He changes His name from and what He changes His name to. You should hear it if you're paying attention. But in our section this morning... Jesus gives us, through Paul, the theology behind his statement that when we pray, we should pray to God as our Father. This is the gospel of Jesus through Paul's letter to the church in Rome. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Now, O Lord, we ask You to lift our hearts that we may set them on the things above and take them away from the things here below, the things that so often weigh us down and captivate us. And we thank you for the good news given through your letter to the church at Colossae. That's the gospel that bears fruit in the church and outside of the church. Hearing the good news of Jesus the Savior is what bears fruit in us. It is not the magnetism of personalities or the dynamism, the excitement of programs. It is the gospel We are sinners, and we should be put away. And God in love, through Jesus Christ, has refused to put us away. And hearing this, bear fruit in us. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would continue to make us a church. That if folks were to look in on it, they would not be able to say that we are successful. But instead, they would have to say... Something odd is happening there. And maybe some who are more discerning and knowing might even say, it must be that Jesus is at work there. Give us only your gospel that we may have nothing to boast in, but instead we may have the fruit that God bears in his sons and daughters from his great unfailing love through Jesus the Savior and the Spirit who dwells within us. We ask all of these things in Christ's name and for His glory. Amen. Would you be seated? So I was wondering this week, what did people do before antidepressants? These brightly colored little pills that take the sadness away. To be very clear about it, I'm not entirely against medication. 
but I'm not entirely for it either. I don't believe that medications are automatically the answer to everything. Some of us truly need them, but most of us don't. You wouldn't know that, however, to look at the numbers of the situation because today an estimated 30 million Americans are on antidepressants. That's one in ten. In the 1950s, when antidepressants were engineered and developed, the doctors who put them together projected and nearly promised that only 50 to 100 people out of every million would ever need to be placed on them. We've come a long way from that. 30 million Americans, 1 in 10. That's 30 of us here this morning, probably. You know, I think that part of our problem may be that we just want some remedy from life. But there is no cure for life. Life is hard, and it's often difficult, and many times it's sad. It's not always sad, but often enough It is, and it's always been that way. And we are sad because of our sin. We're sad with our sin. But for that, God does not medicate. He redeemed. He sent a Savior, and through this Savior, He gives Himself, and He pours out His Spirit. And that's what lifts the burdened heart. But still, it raises all kinds of questions about us, I think. Do we really believe that we have more to be depressed about than anybody else in history? Again, if you look at the numbers, that's what we're saying about ourselves. More than anybody else in the history of the world, we have reason to be depressed. Even though we don't have the Black Plague and the Bubonic Plague wiping out whole cities... We don't tromp through sewage to get to work and to get to church. There are sanitation services that pick up our trash and make the world generally a more healthy place. At least where we live, infant mortality is way down. Life expectancy is up. So is literacy. And you don't have to get into a covered wagon and head west to forge a hard life on the frontier, which would not have been fun. And best of all, you get to pick what you want to be when you grow up. 200 years ago, that wasn't the case. If your daddy was a farmer, so were you. Nobody cared what you aspired to be. Grab a shovel and hitch up the plow. And better still, if you don't like what you've chosen to be now, you can change it. You can make a decision to change what you will do with your life. Is it really true that we have more reason to be depressed than our predecessors? Or maybe it's this. Have we just become more intensely self-centered with every passing decade? We've bought into the message of modern marketing that the universe was built solely around me. And then the universe doesn't cooperate. And that takes us back to the original question. What did people do before the behavioral sciences were invented and the TV therapists flooded the airwaves with their diagnoses and Paxil and Prozac and Zoloft could be obtained at a pharmacy near you? 
What did they do? There was depression, you know. Charles Spurgeon was out of the pulpit a third of his ministry with depression. Cowper, William Cowper, one of the the greatest hymn writers in the history of the church, wrote the gospel more beautifully than many of the hymn writers. And he was so depressed, he was suicidal and had to be hospitalized at the end of his life. What did they do? I can answer for Christians. They held on to this passage. They held on to passages like this. Now again, to be clear, if you're seeing a biblical counselor who is helping you mortify your sin and grow in sanctification, I wouldn't tell you to fire your counselor. And if your doctor has put you on medication out of some medical necessity, I wouldn't tell you to come off your meds. But if you are seeing a counselor or you are on medication and you aren't believing this passage, then ultimately those other two won't do you a shred of good. Those other two are designed to clear the way and to put aside all the competing noise so that you can get to this. And for the rest of us whose circumstances are ordinary, they're just ordinary, And we're just caught in discontent. Or some domestic, relational, vocational despair. This is what we need. This is what the Lord your God has done with you in mind. Paul wastes no time in the passage. He's right on it in verse 12. You are not in debt, he says. And he's reaching back into the previous section. God sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. Or as we heard last week, Calvin translated it, that the righteous requirement of the law might be performed in us through the Spirit. You are not condemned, Paul said. You are free in the Spirit of life. And if Christ has done all this, there is no debt still assigned to your name. This isn't going to happen, of course, but it would be nice to think that it could. This month, no bills arrive at your address. The mailman comes, and he leaves catalogs and birth announcements, and postcards from friends on holiday, but no Bills arrive. There is no rent notice, no mortgage payment, no utilities, no credit card statements, no student loans to pay down. And when you call to find out what's happened, you're told by the operator, the customer service associate, that no, no mistake was made. It's all been paid off for you. Not only did we not make a mistake this month, you won't be hearing from us next month either. In fact, you should plan never to hear from us ever again. And that feeling right there is what this passage is talking about. That glimmer is what Paul is giving to us in this passage. You are not a debtor. You owe nothing. 
In the flesh you would owe. In the flesh, in your strength, in your ability to get everything right, to straighten your life around, living by your own resources in every aspect, physical, spiritual, emotional, relational. If you lived in the flesh like that, you would owe dearly. You'd be so far in arrears, you could never dig yourself out of it. But you're not, Paul says. And the good news is, Jesus is not a credit counselor trying to tell you how to get yourself out of debt. He is the full payment owed. In Christ, the debt has been settled. Nothing to work off. The books are clean. And the creditors of the flesh that hunt you down to collect from you failure, judgment, fear. Paul lists fear in the passage. They have to leave you alone for one reason. They don't work for your God. And Paul is saying in this section, you belong to a father and not a bookie. You, you would, you would still be on the hook if you were still trying to live by the flesh through the law. That is kneecap breaking stuff there. If you were trying to live by the law, that would be the kind of stuff that would get you fitted for a pair of cement shoes and dropped in the bay, never to be heard from again. But the Father has given to you His Spirit, according to verse 13. The Spirit which says internally, over and over again, you are not obligated to the flesh under law anymore. And do you know why? It's because you have a Father whose love has reached to the end of your debt to bring you all the way out from under it. And Jesus gives us a portrait of that fatherly adoration in the parable of the prodigal son. Here is a father whose love was not lost in his work, whose heart was not on his career. It was with his son. Here is a father who would have given anything in his vast house for the asking. In fact, he did. He gave half of his house to a son whom he knew was off to waste it. Here is a father who suffers the son's ingratitude and insult. And a father who mourns when the son leaves and gives himself over to lostness. A father who never stops loving the son even though the son has written the father off. A father who, when the son returns from squandering his wealth, doesn't slam the door in the son's face. He's overjoyed to have the son back. Here's a father determined to forgive a father who dies to his own claim of justice over the boy. So he purifies the son and he dresses him and he sacrifices the fattened calf as a peace offering to have him reconciled and atone. That's a self-portrait of the father's love toward you. That is true medicine for the downhearted, the downtrodden, if you can believe it. And the Spirit says within you, don't you know 
don't you know that's your father? Why would you ever turn your back on this love and run away from home? Doesn't really matter because that's exactly what you'll do, the Spirit says. You'll do that, but He will always call you back through His Spirit, through His Gospel, through repentance, and when you hear Him call and you return, He runs out to meet you with rejoicing and celebration and welcome, just as a father would. I love what Paul has done in this passage. He's very specific in the way he speaks here. He is relationally particular. You are not slaves who have been bought, says Paul. You are children who have been given life by the Father. You have been adopted to be His. And in His spirit of sonship, some translations say, in His spirit of adoption, in His spirit of belonging, we cry out to Him, Abba, Father. In that one verse, Paul does an amazing bit of theologizing. This Hebrew word, this very Jewish word, Abba, is the new tetragrammaton. Now I know that's a word that we don't use very often. Tetragrammaton means four letters. The four-letter name for God. In the Old Testament, the four-letter name for God is Yahweh. Y-H-W-H. Four consonants. If you read God's name in Hebrew, the vowels have been taken out so that it's unpronounceable. In fact, nobody's sure how to pronounce it. Some say Yahweh, some say Jehovah. But the vowels have been taken away. And so when good Hebrew readers come across the name of God, they don't try to read it. They say simply, Lord, instead. And the vowels were taken out of the name so that you can't mispronounce it, and you can't misspeak it, and you can't break the third commandment. So you see, there's the law with more law added to it, and a healthy portion of the spirit of fear heaped on top just for good measure. Don't misspeak his name. He'll get you if you do. Do not misspeak his name. But here he gives us a new tetragrammaton, a new four-letter name, one that has no fear attached to it, one that has no misuse attached to it. How can you ever misuse this name, Abba, Father, Daddy, Papa? You can't misuse it. I never understood this term until I saw it used. We were on vacation one summer, and we walked downtown in the village where we were staying, and we stopped into the ice cream shop, and everybody got an ice cream cone. And a Jewish family walked in after us. They were obviously Jewish. Dad and the sons were wearing yarmulkes. We got our ice cream cones and we walked out of the shop and sat down on the benches out in front of the shop. And after a few minutes, the Jewish family came out with 
their ice cream cones too. And they sat on the benches directly across from us. And the daughter, a girl of maybe 12 years old, she had a conversation with her father that went like this. Abba, what flavor did you get? Pistachio. Abba, I've never had that. Can I try it? Of course. Abba, I have an idea. I'll give you a taste of mine and you give me a taste of yours. And her father smiled and thought it was a great idea. So they delightedly shared their ice cream back and forth. Abba, that's good, the little girl said. And then she leaned against her father. And he wrapped his arm around her. And they sat there, enjoying one another, finishing their ice cream. That's how you use this name. This is the name of shared life. This is the name of paternal closeness that will not put you away. This is the name of enjoyment without limits. The giving of love that spares nothing. This is the name of the covenant. This is the name of the covenant. The name that explains to us more than anything else what the covenant of the living God with His people is. This is the name that says... I am yours and you are mine with everything that that brings along with it. I should tell you that it's not as the ancient heretics believe that the God of the Bible is schizophrenic. They actually believe that the God of the Old Testament was cold and spiteful and mean and cruel and severe. And then in the New Testament, inexplicably, there's a change and God appears Warm and fuzzy and cuddly. But that's not true at all. And that's why the church declared these teachers heretics and excommunicated them. They're false teachers. They're not telling you the truth, the church said. It is true, however, that God reveals himself progressively. Which means he always shows us what is true of himself. But when he has made us ready, he brings us into more of his truth. So in the Old Testament, the covenant name was the Lord. A name that shows we are sinners and he is holy. And a covenant, a promise of binding love is needed so that a reconciliation can occur. But now we're told to call him Abba. The name of closest closeness. The name that says the reconciliation has happened. In the Old Testament, it was the name of the covenant initiator. The one not to be offended. And in the New Testament, it's the name of the covenant keeper. The one who has kept it all. The name of the one who cannot be offended, whose love has put the offense away. In the Old Testament, it's the name that speaks of a great distance that separates us. But in the New Testament, it is the name that says the distance has been forever closed. 
Do you understand that Jesus was born in loneliness? The all-powerful of the universe, wrapped in swaddling clothes and cradled. Coming into the world in tenderness and not in warfare, showing the heavenly heart toward you. Do you understand that Jesus wore in his body the agony of the cross, which was tailor-made, perfectly fitted to your guilt, matching precisely the dimensions of your sin? Do you understand that Jesus pushed past death and walked out of the tomb into endless life with you in mind? Do you understand that Jesus ascended into heaven? He returned to his father's house as the successful son. And he was the only one able to throw open the doors that had been locked tight against sin for ages. And now the days are counted down until you will walk through those doors and join him there. Do you understand that he did all of this so that you could call God by this name, Abba? And without each of these in its place doing its perfect work, you would not be able to call him Abba. But the heart of God was always to be known this way by his people. Always. The gospel is this. God willingly makes himself our Abba because we cannot love ourselves as richly as he loves us. We cannot. Go ahead and try. You'll wear yourself out with trying, but if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. In the end, you'll return to this passage. You'll end up right back here facing again the wonderful truth that he gives himself this name for you to know him by because only he has the bottomless love of Abba to pour out on you. And here's what it all means. It is okay if you never had a good relationship with your father. It is okay if your father was never the father you wished and hoped he would be. It's heartbreaking, sure. But because of this passage, it's not life-ending. And it's not even truly life-defining. And it means that it's okay if you are not a good father yourself. I'm not. I'm not. It's heartbreaking for our kids too. But because of this passage, we are not life-ending to them and we're not even truly life-defining. And it means it's okay if at one time you looked up to someone and you wanted that one to be a father figure and that one never stepped into that role for you. It's okay. Because the perfect fathering of God, true Abba, eclipses all the poor fathering ever to have been done here on earth. And this father never runs out on you. 
And this Father never turns His back on you. And this Father never closes His ears to you. And He never closes His heart to you. And He never turns His eyes to look on you with disgust or resentment or disappointment. And He never withdraws from you His love or His name. And He suffered all the pain that could be suffered between a father and a child on the cross of Jesus. And He has left Himself only all the joys a father could ever take in a child. His every thought and His every emotion toward you is nothing short of full, unremitting joy. So if you want to be healed from all the ways your father hurt you. Stop expecting it to come from the one who hurt you. He's not going to get it together suddenly. You look instead to the one who will not hurt you. Let Abba love you. Let Him tell you of His love and touch you with His love and continually meet you with His love. He is just what you need. Never a pushover. Never a tyrant. His fatherly love will pick up all the shattered pieces of you and weld them together so strongly that no one can ever shatter you again. Not really. And if you're a bad father, please don't try to make yourself a good father. It will not work. If you aim at that target, you will miss it every time. You will drive at that goal relentlessly and you'll be angry at everyone around you when you cannot achieve it. It will be an utter disaster, I swear it to you. So here's what you do. Be amazed at Abba's perfect love for you. Swim in it. Be swept away by it. Be overwhelmed at it. Be amazed at His perfect love for your children that never is there an instant when He leaves His role of perfect fatherly love toward you and your children, if you savor it, if you value it, if you treasure it, without even noticing it, it will begin to have its effect on you. And your children will say, what's gotten into dad? Why is he different? Without even noticing it, Abba will begin to father through you. And if you are frantically looking for a father figure, someone to fill a hole and a void, you can stop now. Stop. You don't need it. Why are we convinced that infatuation with other people will always fill the aches and the wounds within us? You don't need it. You have all the father you need if you will know him as Abba. And not only does He want us to know what He wants us to call Him, how we're to see Him and experience Him, He wants us to know what He calls us, how He views us, how He thinks of us. 
The word isn't even child or son and daughter. It's more loaded than that. He calls us in the passage heirs, heiresses. Not the spoiled, entitled socialites behaving badly across the globe, smugly plastered in the entertainment and gossip pages. Heirs and heiresses, people who will be given all that the Father has to give. All that is His is yours. Your heirs and heiresses to it all, to the coming glory which is indescribable, unbelievable. We'll talk about that next week. But better for the here and now, Paul says your heirs and heiresses to suffering. Which doesn't sound right, does it? That's got to be a misprint. He can't have gotten that right. But he did. You get suffering. Why suffering? Because everything that's the Father's is yours too. And you get to suffer along with Him. And with the Father, you get to suffer in the struggle for righteousness, overcoming, overwhelming brokenness. And in the struggle of righteousness against brokenness, in the midst of it all, in the heat of the fight, you're to understand as heirs that nothing He gives you ever comes without the full measure of His fatherly love. That's what you're to believe and experience. Nothing comes to you apart from His fatherly love. Tiredness and weariness. He gives those to you so that you can know that when your strength runs out, His does not. His strength will never run out. Dead-end jobs. He gives us dead-end jobs so that we can know the kingdom of God is not frustrating and futile. And so that we can know that the kingdom of God is much more valuable than any career. And that's what we're to be about building. People who are hard to love He puts in your life people who are hard to love so that He can teach you how to love and so that He can teach you how He loves you. Discontentment. He gives it to show your gluttonous heart and to make you content with only eternal things. He gives you discontentment to teach you He is never discontent with the life He has with you. Deep meaning is infused through all our suffering because of the gospel. Righteousness must erase brokenness. Righteousness must overcome brokenness. Righteousness will trod down brokenness. But don't get confused and don't get turned around here. You don't have to get excited about suffering. And you don't have to go looking for it or invite it in. You only have to love righteousness. And when suffering comes, you'll know exactly what to do. You'll act like an heir, an heiress, a child of Abba. Skeptics, here's what you're supposed to know about this passage. God does not intend for you to see him as a distant God who is detached who doesn't take notice of you, but as the Father who calls you home for good. 
He is the Father you don't have to hate or avoid anymore. He is the Father who pays all to have all of you. Follow Jesus who knows Him like this. Follow Jesus and you will know Him like this too. I tried, I really tried. My kids and I were talking about the devastation in Haiti last week and how horrible it is and how people lost everything and they're left with nothing. It's very different for us, I was saying to my own kids. We have a home and food and a job and medical attention if we need it and our school is still there and our friends and neighbors haven't died around us. We have an awful lot. When you think of it, I said to them, we're rich and that's where I lost them. Who's rich? We are. No, we're not. I don't know if you've looked around here, but nothing about any of this would say to anybody that we're rich. No, no, no. Really, we are rich. No, we're not. Yes, we are. Trust me. We, we don't have as much as some do, and we may not have everything we want, but compared to most people in the world, we are rich. I tried. I really tried to get my children to see their condition so that their experience would change. I tried to get them to see their richness, but they couldn't. Will you? Will you see your richness? Will you see your richness in God who makes himself Abba in order to love you richly? And will you begin, will you begin to live richly in that love? For your sake, for the church's sake, for the world's sake, I hope you will. In the name of Abba, and of the Son, and of the Spirit, who have made us his eternal heirs and heiresses. Amen.